0: In this episode of 92Y Talks, comedians Matt Walsh and Chris Gethard discuss Walsh's career, his role on Veep, and the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. The conversation was recorded on June 22, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you guys. I think can you everybody can hear me, yeah? Awesome. Welcome. Thank you guys so much for coming out. I'm really excited to be a part of this. I'm really excited you guys are here and taking your time, and I wanna thank the 92Y for uh, doing this at all, let alone letting people like me be um, involved. It's very nice of you. I'm super psyched to uh, be moderating this conversation tonight, which is really just having a conversation. By moderating, I mean just having this conversation. Um, I know for me it means a lot. I, 16 years ago this month, uh, I, was a, I was a sophomore at Rutgers University, and I was, I was not psyched about my life, and I found a place called the UCB Theater, and I don't know, is anybody else here involved at UCB? We've <laughs> got some UCB people. And it really, it changed my life forever for the positive. It really turned me into who I am. And um, this weekend, for anybody who's not familiar, is an event that the UCB Theater holds every year. It's called the Del Close Marathon. It's a, uh, yeah, it's great. It's a big festival. Uh, It runs for like three or four days straight, round the clock, and uh, improvisers from all over the world fly in to be a part of it. And um, luckily, one of the byproducts of that event is that a lot of the old school people from our theater come back to town. And one of the founders here tonight is a guy who really has influenced my life in many ways and who I'm so psyched to talk to and who, uh, who I bet many of you know through UCB and I bet many people know him as Mike from Veep. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Matt Walsh. How Pleasure are you, Chris. Check
1: one, two. Can you hear me? Check one, two.
0: Yeah. I think you're doing Fantastic.
1: good. How are you? I feel like there should be a basketball hoop right here.
0: Oh, yeah. It does have that right? vibe from our first... Pers- it, do- it also has the chandeliers of Disney's Haunted Classy, Mansion.
1: The uh, sports arena. Yeah. It does look like Haunted Mansion. It does. Right. It you has know. that
0: vibe a little bit. A real mix of cultures here at 92 y <laughs> as, uh, as it is to be. Yeah. Um, welcome back to New York. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank yeah. you for asking.
0: Do you like coming back to New York? Because you lived here... I lived here for
1: eight years from 96 to 2004-ish. And uh, I do love coming back to New York. It's like, the marathon is hectic because it's a lot of partying and a lot of late nights, but there's also chances to see theater and see old friends and tremendous dining. So thumbs up, New York.
0: That's awesome. I want to get into it. I want to talk to you about those eight years you were here, and I want to talk to you about a lot of other stuff. The first thing I want to ask you about, though, just because I feel like I have to, is... I feel like one of the things... because Amy be- will not be here. Not tonight. <laughs> do you She's get that coming. one a lot? Yeah, I get that a lot. Yeah. I get that one a lot, and I'm only tangentially connected. Um, no, but I wanted to talk about Veep real quick, because especially in this year, I feel like one of the things people always say about Veep is you always read that it's like, oh, this show is actually really capturing what Washington is like. Yeah. I wanted to know if that is true on your end, and if that gives you any insight into like stuff we should know about, especially because this year is so nuts.
1: Well, the... Related to this craziness year, and specifically Trump's insanity, our stories were pretty much written in May and June of last year, so the insanity that once Trump got in the race isn't really reflected in what we were dealing with this year. But that said, maybe next year the bar could have some insanity uh, that wasn't predicted. Uh, but every year we go out to D.C. Uh, and we interview with you know congressmen, senators, speakers, uh, various people who work in politics and you try to get, you know, either get them out for drinks so they're a little loose or you talk to their assistants because they really have the gossip. And you really just want to know how the sausage is made. You want to know, like, well, what deal was struck here or who gets along or, you know, all kinds of things. And sometimes you just are put in a room with someone who's not aware of what a jackass they are and they just give you tons of gold. <laughs> yeah. So there's that as well. So I, I don't know that I have any, like, insights to like, you know, the thing that I, uh, the first year we went out was right when the Tea Party uh, revolution happened and there was like 10 or 20 of them in the House and there was a guy saying that they literally won't shut up and it's going to gum up Congress. Like they literally, like the House is, the Senate is the rich gentleman's club where they can orate and give speeches and talk forever and then they get to the vote. And in the House, it's just like you're yes, no, that's all you're expected to do. But then there was these 20 yahoos that came in who wouldn't shut up, and it just broke the system. Yeah. And this guy predicted it like years ago. He's like, "It's going to be a real problem, and it has since become a problem. So those are really interesting. Uh, and just the sort of bygone day where you saw Republicans and Democrats having drinks together after hours. That doesn't happen now. And that's like something I sort of learned that I didn't realize. Like there's stories of Ted Kennedy and Jesse Helms getting drunk in the cloakroom, who two polarly opposite, you know, philosophies, but they would still sort of kick up their heels together, and I think that helps get things done. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. So those kind of things come to mind when you ask
0: that. Does it is it weird for you and the cast to feel, to be like? You are this weird middle ground between entertainment and politics now that I'm sure no one anticipated. It it must be odd for you to sit down with congressmen and senators as research for your comedy TV show.
1: It is odd, and it's disappointing to hear that DC is like Veep, because it's like, that doesn't bode well, because we're all so... (laughs) We're all so terrible at our jobs that it doesn't bode well. But I I don't know. The other thing about DC I remember is second season, because we do a show you know, that's basically an industrial for people in politics. Like, regardless of whether show was good, people who were in D.C. were going to like it, I think, because it's about subject matter they deal with every day. So when we went to this bar right off the hill, we were instantly swarmed. Like, just so many people loved the show, right out, right out of the gate after first season. But the extraordinary thing is, like, not one of them wasn't elected official or a judge they were all like lobbyists and people out there in the periphery and then it made you realize like oh 90% of the people who live there are trying to get senators and congressmen's ears and that was sort of insightful
0: does it does it hit like does that does that wear on you guys at the job or are you able to turn off that research part and just do a show like it's an At the end job? of the
1: day it's just get to the dick joke or yeah. get to the <laughs> Get to the vulgar insult. Like the writers, we use that stuff, and it it is incorporated, but ultimately when the scripts come in, you're just trying to play that thing as funny as possible. And so uh, it doesn't get in the way, no, it doesn't. Like you try to, in terms of your character, because we had the opportunity to play it for five seasons now, you try to make that like real, and you speak up, it's like, oh, Mike wouldn't do that, or, you know, Amy might say this, or that's not Mike's job, or whatever. Um, so you're, you are responsible for that character, but ultimately, whatever's written, you just commit and execute, you know? And so it doesn't get in the way when we're doing the show, when we're filming.
0: Yeah. That's really fast. That sounds like a harder acting job than I've ever been asked to do. Why is that hard? Because there, there's like a weird responsibility to that. To what? To like sit down, like you just said, like like... I feel like you're probably used to it now, but I think to the rest of us, the idea that it's like, so you've been hired for a comedy show and now you're going to talk to a bunch of lobbyists and get congressmen drunk <laughs> and like... Well,
1: that's your own... Re- that's like research. Like if you're going to play a race car driver and you get to meet the greatest driver in yeah. the world, that's fantastic. those guys would
0: talk to you. Are they all... Oh, like,
1: they love to just, talk about... They love to talk about... Oh my God, you can't yeah. shut them up. They love to talk about it. And many of them if not most of them, think that the people we're making fun of are other people than themselves.
0: Right. Do you
1: know what I mean? Do they
0: watch the show? Do you hear from politicians yeah. who watch the show? Yeah,
1: A lot of them do watch it, and a lot of them say it's quite accurate. And the people... Because uh, it's ultimately, I think it's a workplace comedy. Yeah. I and mean, obviously, it's set in uh, the political world, but I think it's about the people who populate that world that aren't, you know, the president, in a way. And so uh, I think it's rewarding for them to see the shit that they have to do and that we portray it and the insanity that they have to deal with. So I, I'm, that makes me very happy that like they, they're sort of unsung heroes in the political world, that, they get, that their lives get reflected. So I think that's kind of fun.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Now I want to, because I mean, we know each other through UCB, so yeah. I kind of want to be a nerd about improv stuff for a while and just that history for a while. So I know, I know like the basic bullet points of uh, I'm, I'm, I'm for any, just to be clear about this, for any UCB people here, I'm probably historically one of the biggest nerds about improv stuff and improv history. So I wanted to just pick your brain, because my understanding. And you just
1: made an improv movie. I about did. improv.
0: Mike Berbiglia made Mike it, Birbiglia. I acted in it. Yes, the great, sorry. Mike Berbiglia. Um, comes out July 22nd. Oh, <laughs> so. uh, no, but, because I, I remember one of the early things, because at this point, UCB is like, it has changed comedy. It, it, on two coasts now, New York. It, like, long-form improv didn't exist. And now, L.A., there's, like, a literal facility with, like, valet parking.
1: That is ridiculous.
0: You never signed up for that. No. What no. did you think was going to happen? when That you guys, one made me...
1: Like, the, when the L.A. theater opened, it's basically like a mini junior college. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. Like, it's, it's, crazy. it's accredited.
0: It's an accredited school. Yeah, we sell, school. like,
1: turnovers. Like... We sell, like, pastry. Like, that's so weird. <laughs>
0: Like you know, the going
1: <laughs> from the 22nd Street Theater that was like a, an old strip club and the refrigerator in the box office used to have like 30 dildo, dildos. So many
0: dildos in that fridge. Yeah.
1: yeah. Leftover from our sketch show. We had a sketch that had a lot of dildos and somebody thought it'd be funny to keep them. And, and for some reason they
0: were, they were in the refrigerator. Yeah. Does that preserve their life? I'm not sure. Now, when you're in Chicago, this is pre-1996, my understanding, because I always heard, because UCB, I always thought one of the secrets to what made the theater work was that you and Amy and uh, Ian and Matt, the other founders of theater, like you all are pretty different people in many ways. And I always felt like you could feel the four of you guys. Like I felt like as a kid and as a student, it was always like Besser's. Like, Besser's, like, hardline. You don't want him, like, you want to impress him. You don't want him mad. Amy's this, like, like, uh, like, force of nature and how does she do what she does. Ian's the machine. That's his actual nickname. Yeah, the machine. But then you were, like, one of the most important people to the early days of UCB because you were the guy who would actually, like, talk to us and was fun. <laughs> you were the member of UCB that was, like, actually down to just, like, have fun and hang out. So I want to know, like... When you were in Chicago and you guys were planning this move to New York to, yes. like, build this sketch show and eventually this theater, like, what was your, what were your goals? Like, that's a the huge... The goal
1: thing. when we left uh, Chicago for New York was to get a TV show. And we decided that New York sustained theater. Like, L.A. is a showcase town. Like, you go there and you do a showcase and you fly back to Chicago. But L.A., you could build... Or, excuse me, New York, you could build a following and get a get a run going and that was our goal. So we had like literally a, uh, a moving van of props that we drove out in like three shows and we just hit the ground running and the goal was to garner a following and attention and then the improv show connected with people who had never seen Long Form and we were basically taking what we had learned in Chicago and did it here so we did this free show which became a small sensation and from that people wanted to learn how to, we never had the intention of opening a theater is what my point and cut to two years after we landed, we had so many students, and those students had done shows that we directed, all four of us directed, that we were basically programming this little theater on 17th Street. So we said, why don't we have our own clubhouse, and I think Besser found this strip club that was shut down.
0: <laughs> that, like, even that is such a different New York, that you could just find an abandoned strip club. Yeah. And be like, hey, let's start a business, and the city would be like, right on, man. Like, <laughs> That doesn't happen anymore. I know. St- yeah,
1: you're right. It, it was. Uh, I think Giuliani shut it down for code of whatever some code.
0: And I think the uh, code was we shouldn't have a house of prostitution yes, on 22nd. Yes.
1: was cleaning Street. up the city. Yes. Because
0: we all laid, I later. It
1: was probably a house of prostitution we found, upstairs.
0: We found out because it was it was shut down because the the um, fire escape just ran from one of the apartments downstairs into the theater. And then I, I forget who found it. Someone read that the scam with this old strip club used to be that you would literally climb up the fire escape with a stripper into that apartment and yes. it was like an actual brothel. Yes. And I believe you lived in that apartment for a I while. did not.
1: <laughs> or you lived in the one I above it. I lived there. above the brothel. Yeah. I lived above the brothel and then I got a better apartment on top of that. So I had the top floor. So you I was further away from the brothel. <laughs> as my success went.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> so but yes,
1: it was, it was shady things going on upstairs. Big time. Big time. And,
0: and when you started the theater, which was kind of like accidental, or not accidental, but sort of incidental to what you guys came to New York for. Yeah. You came for one reason and then yeah. kind of slid backwards into that. At what point did you realize the theater was becoming... Like, I feel like to, it's like the modern version of, like, Second City. It's like the modern version of the Groundlings. These, like... Troops come along every couple decades that just like put a new stamp on things and totally shift how comedic talent is found. Like at what point did you realize, like, oh, we accidentally made this thing that's become kind of a force?
1: I don't know if there was ever like a specific moment, but I remember when we had so many classes and we started to codify the curriculum, it felt very grown up, like, oh wow. Cause in the beginning it was just me, Matt, and Amy, and I could teach my take on improv, and Besser could teach his and Ian could teach his and Amy could teach his, and they were different. I mean, we all had the same principles in in mind, but we were all sort of teaching our take on it. But then once we started to codify, like, people need to have, because other people were teaching, people need to have the same skill set when they go from level one to level two. Once we started organizing that, then that felt pretty grown up. I don't know if I felt like, oh, Second City, but I guess, like, the success of people coming out of the theater and then articles getting written about it, then I probably realized that, oh, we, I guess we are like the next phase in the improv comedy movement uh, for now. You yeah. Know, there'll be another one, I'm sure.
0: Because I rem- I, if I remember correctly, I, I remember when Andy Daly got mad TV. Yeah. And if I remember right, they shut down the theater that night and held a party because th- someone got a job. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it was like, like our victory. We that were also happy. the attitude. Yes.
0: I remember being, like, I don't think people would buy it if they just showed up now, but the UCB, like, I was, when I found it, I was 20 years old, I was miserably depressed, felt like an outcast in all areas of my life, and showed up and was like, what is this fucking island of misfit toys? How did you stumble into it? Straight up, this is true. I was doing short form improv at college, Mm -hmm. wanted to keep doing it in the summer, because it was like the only thing that was making me happy was comedy, sent away... I I was, like, Googling, or or at that point, it was probably like Yahoo, Vista ing And I found out about Chicago City Limits, because that was, like, the big dog in New York before UCB. Mm -hmm. Sent away for them, and they sent me this brochure. It was, like, this real fancy brochure that laid out all the info. And then I found the UCB website, which was the most... Terrible? Poorly organized (laughs) website I've ever seen. It was just a series
1: of squares that were... There was a time when I was in charge of the website... (laughs)
0: It was insane. And it was Dynamo,
1: but I would have meetings with Dynamo and Chad Carter, who are two brilliant people, uh, and I was trying to manage that, which is why it was terrible.
0: But it was just these squares, and it didn't say what yeah. they were, and some of them were links and some of them weren't, yes. so you had to hover over them. And then when I finally found the one that said classes, you clicked on it, and the description, I'll never forget this, was, we will teach you guerilla fighting techniques and spit takes. And that was all it said about what the classes were. And then I, 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 like, uh, I called up and I was like, I'd love some info and gave somebody my address and you guys sent me nothing. <laughs> Chicago City Limits, I had a brochure like 36 hours later and for some reason I was like, these guys don't have the time for me, man. This is the place to be. Oh, it made you want it more. I was just like, this place is cool. Like, this, place is not e- this place does not need me. Yeah. This other place feels like they do. And then I sent in, used to send in a $25 deposit check And I sent it in and then John Bowie called me and was like, oh, we don't have room in classes for you. And I was like, oh, when's the next one? And back then, now anybody who knows UCB knows, like level one classes go up and it's like 45 seconds later, they're sold out. And then the next day, it's just constant. They were like, there's no new classes until like November. And it was in June. It was like, oh, we don't have enough demand to have another class for six months and I was like, oh, I'll be back in school. That sucks. I won't be able to do it to next year. And then I actually said to John, I was like, are you the guy from the band Egghead? Because he was a punk rocker. Oh, wow. And he was like, you know my band? And I was like, yeah, I have your 7-inch. I read the fanzine you guys put out. It's great. I, like, I saw you guys when I was 15 in New Jersey. And he was like, all right, man, your class starts Sunday. <laughs> But it's crazy, it, it, does, it, does it blow, does it really, it makes my head spin, and I wasn't there. I started in 2000, so I started four years after you guys really got the ball rolling. Does it spin your head to realize like, to think about what it, like what do you pine for when you think of the old days? What are the stories that stand out to you from solo artists Yeah. Uh, well, theater? because
1: I lived upstairs above the theater, I was really immersed in that culture. It was almost like the dean of students was living upstairs. And so I'd, I would see everybody often. Uh, And I remember, like, going down into the theater and seeing Delaney giving people haircuts at two in the morning. (laughs) Like, I would... Mike is a great improviser, and he's a teacher, and super funny. But it was like, I'd hear music, because I was upstairs, and I'm like, what's going on? And I would go downstairs, and somebody was using the theater to give a haircut. (laughs) So, like, stuff like that. Uh, What do I remember? I just remember uh, I had a giant dog that lived with us. uh, Do you remember?
0: I think I told you about this. My mom... Do you remember the story I told you about this? One of the first interactions I ever had with you, I was interning. I was 21 years old. And no, I had a show. And I was trying to convince my parents to come in from Jersey because I was like, this, I love this place. I love this thing. And they came to the show. And the old theater, the waiting room, was just this narrow hall. Yes. Like, when they shut it down for fire codes, we were all really sad and upset. But then, like... <laughs> as soon as we found a new theater, I think everybody was like, oh yeah, it was a death trap. It was a real But it was, a but real it was an
1: operating, the- you know, it was a business beforehand. Yeah, it so. was. But,
0: but I was ahead. waiting in the lobby and I went out to check on my mom. And I was like, how are you? And she was like, I'm, I'm very upset. And I was like, why? And she was like, cause that big shot brought his gigantic dog and he's smoking a cigar in this lobby with all these people. <laughs> And she pointed to you, and I was like, "Mom, that's one of the guys who owns the place." And she goes, "Well, he sure acting like it." I was it. not. Sm- <laughs> but here's my favorite thing. Here's my. I was c- smoking a cigar
1: indoors. Chewing on a cigar or something. Chewing on a
0: cigar. I would never smoke a cigar indoors. But here's my favorite thing about that story: was many years later. When I actually, I worked at the UCB school for many years. I actually, like, worked on those curriculums when you talked about them. But I told you that story when we had become, like, when I was, like, not this kid who was in awe of everything. And I'll never forget, you you said, like, your mom was right. I'm on the (laughs) side of your mom. And it made me realize, Walsh is the best guy. He was like, yeah, you know what? Your mom was put upon that evening, and it shouldn't have happened. And it was, like, (laughs) super genuine and sweet. But that used to happen. People used to have, like... Some yeah. of the stuff that happened there. There were actual crazy people around. There were. I remember, like,
1: uh, in the early days, because the strip club, for some reason, had a real connection with the Orthodox Jewish community. <laughs> for the real. The community. The brothel or whatever was happening there. There was yeah. a gentleman who frequented that place. And for a couple years later, these guys would come in in traditional garb and they would come to the box office and they'd go to the show and, like, oh, these are the kind of shows, like, oh, it's not... That, and we were like, no, the business is gone. And they would like fake, like look at a brochure and like, oh, okay. Like, and like, oh, I'll,
0: I'll be back. Like, I also remember Fleet Week every year. Yes. Was just drunk sailors stumbling in, like, ah, oh, fuck. Yeah, they were like, so improv. So bummed out. They were just like, I gotta watch so improv. Out. Like, what? Yeah.
1: yeah. And I remember like all the New Year's Eve parties we used to have. Oh. Those were like crazy fun and lots of craziness. I miss those. Uh, I remember the trap door. Oh, the there basement. was like the basement was like crazy scary. Dirt floor. And that's where teams would rehearse. There was like a almost like a on a submarine. There was a there was a hole in the box office that was like this narrow and you would go down this ladder and then you'd you'd rehearse you like this. this you know the ceiling was like that or there was a big trap door outside that would lift up and that was like people would fall in because it was so dangerous. They just cut a hole in the floor and put a hinge on it, so like the the impromptu nature of the theater was. I'm very nostalgic for that because it was just literally we cut the stripper runway in half, <laughs> knocked out all the mirrors,
0: and I I and wasn't Took there the for pole that.
1: down and then pushed the two pieces together and made a stage.
0: I heard that that was a truly disgust. Like everyone, oh. I got involved about a year after that. I think six months after that. But everyone who was part of the theater who helped physically reshape the stage yes. says it was one of the most unsanitary. Like, weeks of their lives.
1: Yes. And there was all these, like, stuffed chairs that would be in, like, a library or a rich study in there, but they'd been used many times, and they went right in the trash. <laughs> like, it was awful. Yeah. It was, and there was a big picture of the woman who owned it, who was our landlord, and it was like, May, she was dressed like Mae West in, like, stockings, and and there was a big picture like that in there. It was crazy.
0: So I think one of my big questions is like, why do you think it went from that to what it is today? Like, how does that happen? I think we had the good
1: fortune of like bringing something to New York that didn't exist, which was like long form Chicago style improv. And then I think we did due diligence on our curriculum. Like we found uh, really talented people who then became teachers, obviously. So we lucked into like, talented people who wanted to teach, and we had a good curriculum. And then I think, truthful, there was, the, I think it was the void. Like literally, if you were in UCB in 98 or 99 or 2000s, like Andy Daly's or Riggle or Paul Sheer, yeah, like you could be on stage six nights a week and just work your chops and get better and do shows, Billy Merritt, all these people. And so I think their passion for it they got better, and then word got out. You know, Askat was sort of the cornerstone, the the Sunday night show. So as word spread, I think we lucked into a void, quite honestly. And, and the friends we had were, all, when we landed in New York, we had friends who were writers at Conan, writers at SNL, and then we did Luna, and you know, we befriended people like Janine and the State guys. So the friends we made came to our little clubhouse, and I think it was a ripple effect. So I remember, like
0: Louis used to run like. Like a workout show there. Yeah, and no one even remembers that. It's just like he had like a weekly show to just try shit.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Todd,
0: Todd, Todd Barry, Barry-ish, Icky. Yeah, some great shows. And he did a
1: show with John Groff. Yeah, He's the Blackish head writer now called Sidecar. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, we're like old men in the old folks home.
0: They are. But I did want to talk about the modern day because it is now. It's like a professional place, and I still, it's like still the best. But I wanted to ask you like. Based on the fact that UCB now has this history, and I think a real legacy, I think people now show up, first of all, in droves compared to how they used to, and also sometimes with agendas. Like I think because of the work that the UCB did, now, I mean, I remember when when I showed up in 2000, I had been doing improv in college, and that was kind of like, not a rarity, but not a common, people were like, oh, you did short form in college. Like, okay, you're a little ahead of the curve now. There's kids who have done it for four years and then trained in their home cities for three more years.
1: My son, who is seven, took his first improv class in Los Angeles today. Really? And I don't, I don't want him to take improv. <laughs> I don't, because I think when you take it at a young age, because your job as a teacher when a seven year old up to like 14 years old is just really to give love to that person and let them learn to express themselves. Because like improv came out of like, say, Viola Spolin. And she took these games into working-class poor neighborhoods. And these kids with you know, terrible lives, at least they could express it in a safe environment. And it was simple because there's no props or anything. And so like, your job in, a, in early stages improv classes, I think, is just to like, support their choices and let them express themselves. So you're constantly, whatever they do, like, oh, that was amazing. You're so good. You're so worthwhile. So you're, you're, you're just being reinforced for anything. So by the time, this is my fear, by the time you're 14, you could be the worst improviser in the world and you're constantly hearing you're amazing and great. So I think it ingrains bad habits. So you want you to be sp- like. I, I, but I'm not gonna stop him. Yeah. But Because my wife signed him up and he was, because when he told me, he's like, Dad, I want to do improv. I'm like. Where is he going? Okay, doing okay. Uh, there's a little theater on Ventura in the valley. And I hear it's good, like it's very supportive. It must be weird for
0: you and them to know, I mean, you've literally... I don't think they
1: know that he's my son. You've
0: literally co-written a, manu- a book on how to do improv. Yeah. And you're dropping him off at some theater in Ventura.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, my wife today did it, so... That's awesome. I'll let you know how it is, but it's... it's improv has spread... Uh, I, w- I went off on a tangent about how oh, I don't think course. young people should do improv. <laughs> I think because if you're going to be a professional with it, which is yeah. what I hope he could do, yeah. is that you can start later when you have a wealth of life experience, when you're ready to get young, and also too. people can be exactly you want him exactly. to exactly
0: like, you want them to take like an Owen Burke class, an Owen Burke or a Besser class, <laughs> but not at seven. No, not yeah. at seven. You, these Delane. are teachers who it was legendary. Like you walk into the gauntlet when you walk into you, you're going to know if you're good. Yeah, and if, even if you are good, that's not what we're focusing on. Now <laughs> we're focusing on what you can be better at. Yes. But yes. My question, to loop it back around, is for, for current-day UCB students, like, what do you, when you think about the theater you helped found now, like what do you think is the realistic experience that a student can expect? What's the ideal? Because people now show up with agendas. They see that Bobby Moynihan came out of there. They yeah. see that Zach Woods and Adam yeah. Pally, Ben Schwartz. They know Ellie Kemper came out of there. Well,
1: one thing I know still is, I would say 50% of the people in class... In, on a general class, have no aspiration still of pursuing comedy as a career. But even I think... Even in L.A.? Uh, even in L.A., I think. Wow. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but there are people who are uber-focused, and and that's okay. Uh, and I think in some ways, because it's bigger, it is a little more corporate. Like, there's not, like, craziness happening as much. But I guess my hope for somebody who finds improv is, one, because there are, you know, there's in, the, in L.A., we have four stages, and then we have a digital thing where they can make video. So hopefully there's plenty of room for talented people to rise and get to do shows and not worry about the stakes or where it's going to happen. And also, it's like, I always say this, is that when I took my first improv class three weeks in, and I, maybe four weeks or maybe five weeks in, I finally did my first good scene. And it was like a drug. It was like a crackhead. It was like this I want to do for the rest of my life. So I'll, regardless of the way it's changed, I still think anybody who has that predisposition, to, like you did, looking for something to make them happy or looking for something like, I don't know where this is leading, but I'm going to do whatever I can to do this six nights a week, we still do that. Like We still provide that drug to anybody who might be predisposed. There, it is more complicated now because it is a, we're a bigger corporation, quite frankly. So it is, it's not as like old-timey nostalgic, and there's not as much insanity, but I think there's still that experience where you, know, you can like learn this thing, and if you like that thing, you can do it forever, and there's room for you to get on stage or make videos. That's my hope yeah. for anybody who jumps into the community. Yeah, And it's also, I, I, it's not the point of it, but so many people like meet friends for life, and like there's people who have been performing for 20 years now, and they still come in, once a week and do their show with their 45-year-old friends. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Like yeah. it, and there's no benefit to it, believe me. Like, <laughs>
0: the, There's
1: no agent seeing the 45-year-old people trying to discover them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I so do. that
0: still goes on. Oh, and, the idea that no one, an agent isn't looking to discover yeah. you? Yes, I know that feeling. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I'm 51, and I
1: do cat probably once a month now, and I'm by far the oldest person in the room. Yeah. Always. Yeah. But I still love doing it, and my friends still do it, so... Yeah. I like that about the theater.
0: Now, you mentioned that things weren't as, or they're not, like, as insane as they used to be, which is yeah. just a byproduct of, like, growing and figuring out what you're doing. But I do want to talk about that, because I always got the sense that in the early days, you really were, out of the four UCB people, I think the one that maybe just brought the most sheer insanity. And, like, I remember you that show you did that took place in a mental hospital. Yep, yeah. Robot TV. Robot
1: TV. You did some things that... Robot went, TV was for... Uh, was uh, a show for robots who were high. So we would imagine the audience
0: was robots who were high, which is insane. It's, I can say having seen it, like a performance art level of bizarre at times. Yeah. Now what was it that like made that, cause you also did, you, were, you, you did a lot of stuff at the Annoyance Theater before. I did. Before. And that's, I feel like, a thing I've never had a chance to talk with you about. And that was always known. That was like a fringe weirdo collective in Chicago, yes. right? Yes, yes. And, and so what was, what was going on in Chicago between annoyance, between, like, the UCB shows in Chicago? I don't think people realize, like, a lot of those shows took place at, like, two in the afternoon on a street corner. Yeah.
1: Like,
0: what was the stuff going on with you guys in Chicago, and you in particular, that you brought to New York and realized? Because I felt like for you, I look back at it now and realize when you showed up and had this sort of, like, chaotic desire to stage these bizarre shows and then you're finding people in New York who are real misfits that have not been granted that before it must have been like a playground for you it was Kilgore the Halloween show was Kilgore
1: we did that the the bloody Halloween musical
0: every year I mean Kilgore that show if anybody ever saw it they would paint the stage white every year and when I say hundreds of gallons of blood would be all over the place by the end. I am underselling how much blood you put in that show. And it
1: was a bummer like in November there'd still be like blood on the carpet because it gets everywhere. And
0: it was all made out of chocolate syrup (laughs) so it just smelled like shit for months. Yes. And roaches love chocolate syrup so there'd be a roach infestation. So what was your like from the yeah especially in 22nd street. Yeah. What was uh, like what was going on in Chicago before you came to New York that made like what was your drive? And this is not the type of thing you think about when you're in it as a young man, but looking back, like do you feel like you had were you pursuing some specific voice that you that you I think finding? like you I found
1: something that made me happy which was improv. Like I was pursuing psychology. I thought I was going to be a psychologist and that was not going to happen. I was too difficult to be that responsible and smart about pathology. <laughs> It's very difficult, and I was exposed to, like, teenagers who were suicidal. And I did that for a couple years, so the minute I stumbled into, like, improv and places like— I have never heard
0: that before. Yeah. So you went from working with suicidal teens, and then all of a sudden you were like, Oh, thank God. Well, no, at (laughs) night— This other thing, thank God. No, at
1: night—I'd already taken my first improv class in college, so at night I would do, like, sketch shows and improv, Uh, but during the day I had a real job, and I was still holding on to that dream. Like, I was taking some postgraduate stuff, and— thinking, like, this is kind of a hobby. I I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. But uh, when I got into places like The Annoyance, what I learned from that process is they would do, like, three to five months rehearsal improvising, and then from that you would form a show. And so it was kind of like writing a show through improv, and that's kind of what I did with some of the shows I did at UCB, like uh, The Adler or The Most Special Place on the Planet or whatever. And those were, like, I liked... Teaching that to other people because it's a really fun process to create characters through improv. And it actually helped with Veep because Veep was really loose in the beginning and you could sort of offer suggestions and improvise traits that uh, the writers liked. And so, but in Chicago, it was more about, and then Improv Olympic was about straight up like Herald and long form. And so I had my foot in many theaters. And then UCB, I was doing in the early 90s, we were doing like, like you said, like premise shows where it was like a new sport. Or it was like a show outdoors at two in, two in the afternoon, or a fake you know uh, protest outside of Wrigley Field. So there was all these okay. different things happening, and then I guess like in '94 is when like me, Matt, and Ian just codified like this is what we're gonna do, yeah. And we got focused. So, and but Chicago was... had many different sort of strains of improv when I was coming up.
0: And I've never talked to any of you guys about this, but I get the sense was there there must have been like a big chip on your shoulder in a way if you guys were like we're going to do all this crazy shit, make a lot of noise, and then move somewhere else and do it do it ourselves. Outside well, we had of the classic,
1: like home. Ian, Amy, and I were touring with Second City at the time. I think we toured for a year, and it was like, that was my first comedy, like, full-time job, and I never had to have a, I was so happy to tour, but you were touring old scenes that were really funny when they were, created, but they felt a little stale.
0: But, like, I've heard, I've never done that, but I hear some of those scenes they make you do in Torko are literally from the 1950s.
1: Yes, yes.
0: That sucks. And
1: so there was, like, yeah, there was the freedom, like, UCB was, you could do anything you wanted, but I think in, like, 96 or 95, we went into the artistic director and told him that we were going to move to New York and we are going to try to get our own sketch show, and he was like, you're making a huge mistake. It never works out. I can't tell you how many people come in here and have faith that it's going to work out, you're making a huge mistake. Because Second City back then, I haven't been there in a while, was like, there was a huge line and there was like a pecking order. Like you did Turco, then you did ETC, and then you got on main stage. So there was a lot of waiting around and nobody wanted to do that. It was so you guys, like,
0: they were like, you're making a huge mistake and you guys were just like, all right, we'll see you later. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: And we had, like, a six-month commitment, the four of us, was like, we'll give it six months, like, see what happens. And then In New York? Yeah. That
0: was all you committed to, was six months? Yeah,
1: like, literally, we knew that we would... I never heard that. Yeah, we would not turn anything... We would turn, you know, auditions down to focus on the group, and we weren't going to go back. Like, we were going to go for six months. So in the beginning, like, nobody knew how long it was going to last. But we committed 100%. It wasn't like... Uh, I had a flight booked back in June, you know. We were def- definitely committed. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, we had, you know, incremental success right away. We had people know us, and we got booked in the bigger shows in town, and people started to come see us, and we discovered solo arts. and So it was incremental success,
0: yeah. I do love, I think one of the things that I found is, from the first day I was ever at UCB, and I think until now, you guys built a place that never had... An attitude to shut people down. Like I don't think there's ever been moments where people are like taking at UCB. I don't think it's ever said taking a risk is a mistake. I don't think that gets said like it was said to you guys. And I think that that's really like yeah. I'll, I'll never forget when I was tw- like I showed up. You I don't know if you even remember me. I was like a 20 year old kid with a bowl haircut and I was like sickeningly pale and had giant glasses. But people were like, "Oh, you're funny and you work hard." come hang out. Yeah. And I'd like go drinking at bars when I was 20 years old with like guys in their 40s and we'd just be like, oh, that one scene in class was really weird. And it's always been a place where it's like, if you work hard and you yeah. and you are funny, you have a place here. And I yeah. think that's still true.
1: I think that is still true. I would hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm not coming through the program. Yeah. But I think that is true.
0: Now, what do you think, like to loop it back to Veep, what do you think about like your experience building this thing, being one of the people to codify it, what, like, what, what real-world skills, as far as the entertainment industry goes, which is not the real world at all, but like, as far as being a working professional, mm-hmm. I feel like you see so many UCB people and there's been so many articles and you see them everywhere. You see people on like, insane sketch shows and Adult Swim stuff. You see people on sitcoms. These are like very different comedic things, but something about what you built at the theater extends... It's like, a, it's like a liquid that you can fill into all these other containers. And I wonder if you have any insight into like...
1: What is that skill or what is that thing like, people learn that translates to success?
0: What are those things that you allowed people to walk away with? So I don't know. I
1: mean, hopefully at the end of the day, it's like simple things like listening, like learning to listen inside a scene and finding that interesting thing as opposed to uh, stand-up where you're just writing your next thing and you're not listening. Like I think that's a big part of it. You know, hopefully willingness to, like, commit hard to making a jackass of yourself. Uh, hopefully that translates and people learn that along the way. You know, it's, uh, it's, I think it's the ear. I mean, I, if I had to, I think it's the ear to know where the comedy is. Is like if you do it enough and you watch people who are talented enough, the simplest way to put it is you have to have an ear to know where the, the thing is that you're going to attack and how to heighten it. And there's skills that you learn how to heighten or how to explore. And then if you have enough stage time, you learn to play things real, like acting, basic acting, like play it real and commit to the reality, like don't sell the joke out. Don't like tepidly like wink at the audience and say, I'm making a joke, like really commit to that fucked up reality.
0: Yeah. And when you get on a set with people who haven't had that improv training, how do they, like, do you feel like it's, can you lock in with them? Do they lean on you harder? Can you like lead the charge on that?
1: I'm more willing to be bad at improv than other people, yeah. Yeah. Like people, when we rehearse at Veep, I have no problem being first. And not that I'm better than them, but I, I know that, you know, improv is like a 50-50 proposition. Like it's going to be funny or not funny, you know. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you could cut improv and make it look good, yeah. but ultimately you have to go through a lot of horrible things to get to good stuff. Yeah. And so I've, I, I've... I'm bulletproof to that awfulness. You know what I mean? Because I've done a million improv scenes. So many. That's like Yeah, I've done my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. For sure. So I know that like, oh, I have no problem. Of course this is going to suck for a while. But especially as a writing tool, you always can have faith that like we're going to find something interesting, even if there weren't laughs in the room. There's something interesting in this exercise.
0: Yeah. Like even a story that I was astounded to learn just a few years ago is like even even the show Ask Cat, which is like the... Show it's been running in New York for 20 years now. It's like probably the most legendary improv show in the country at this point. Mm -hmm. I just found out a few years ago that it is named after a show where everyone in it. I don't know if you were in that show, but where people just ate shit hard. Yeah, where Besser was. It was synonymous
1: for tanking, basically.
0: Like the story I heard was Besser was on stage pretending to build an igloo with his (laughs) mime work, and everyone bailed and no one joined him on stage. Yeah, and he started (laughs) glaring at everyone in rage. They bailed on him, and then inexplicably, Horatio from offstage just started yelling, Ass cat, just to mess with him, yeah. and I think there is something about, something about the attitude you guys brought to New York, which is like a real punk rock thing to go like, we are going to name our show, which will become a flagship show for our, a whole movement, yeah. a whole theater movement, a comedy movement that has a major impact on the American entertainment industry. We will name the flagship show after our worst failure. Well, that first website you discovered was
1: punk rock. Oh my God. <laughs> it was, it was like, very foreboding, like, it's not helpful. Aggressively. It wasn't,
0: it wasn't customer friendly. Aggressively trying to get <laughs> yeah. me to not want to be there. Yeah. And can we say, it for, I can't stress enough. Do you look back at the early days and realize there were people you were allowing to hang out at your theater who were actually dangerous people? Yes. Can we talk? Because yes. we only have 20 minutes and then we have some crowd questions. I want to get to them. But like, I remember a guy. Please. Who was like, uh, he was like a real weirdo. He took classes a little after me. First name? Frank. Okay. Real skinny guy. Yep, yep. Who we, we found out was a professional clown. And then he had a website and one, somebody went on his website and found out that he was also selling a homemade board game called Devil's Chess. <laughs> and it was like, oh, this guy is really concerned. Weird, yeah. Well, improv... Improv communities are notoriously
1: tolerant of weirdos.
0: They are. They
1: are. And sometimes people get welcomed and they don't manifest that weirdness in a dangerous way inside that theater. Yeah. But outside that theater, they might be dangerous. Yes. Really crazy.
0: Okay, I want to make sure I get to some questions that you guys submitted. Thank you for doing that. I hope that our portion of the show has been... I hope I guided it towards some interesting stuff that you guys were looking for. And um, here's a good question. How much, if any, of Veep is One improvised? One person clapped. One person thought I did a good job. That's okay. Yeah. Used to that. Me too. Um, how much, if any, of Veep is improvised? And if so, who does it, uh, if so, who does it most often? Uh, Veep is
1: improvised in the rehearsal process. We use it as a tool to like, figure things out that aren't working. So we put scenes on their feet and we put the scripts away. And the writers are in the room and what we discover that's useful, the writers take notes, and the next draft reflects a lot of what we've discovered. And then on the day of filming, you know, 90, 95% is on the page, but you're always welcome to, like, pitch new jokes. or They're not like Aaron Sorkin scripts where you have to say it word for word. As long as you're serving the joke, uh, anything goes. But you can always pitch a bit in the room when you come into a scene, like if you're with Julia, Tony, anybody, me, you can go, well, let's try this, or, and then,
0: go ahead. I'm glad you really stuck it to Sorkin there, too. took a stand. You finally took a stand. Well, he's notoriously anal about saying every word. Sure, I know. Um, can you talk about the Aspenny Penny sketch on Comedy Central? How did that idea happen?
1: That was Ian Roberts' sketch, and that was a sketch when I was touring with Ian, because I toured with Ian Horatio with Second City, and he wrote it on the, those touring days, uh, and it was something that he was doing a joke with Katie, his wife, girlfriend at the time, and somehow it inspired him. So Ian came up with that uh, premise, and that was a sketch that we were doing in Chicago that we would force, like we were kind of bad touring, we would force sketches in because we were so tired of the 50-year-old sketches. We would force sketches into the show, or we would do, Horatio and I would do things where we would bring a scissor lift on stage and just change a bulb and call it a sketch. In Second City shows? Yeah, and make the audience watch. So we would come into like Des Moines, Iowa, And say to the stage manager, do you guys have a scissor lift? Meanwhile, we already saw it. They're like, yeah, well, we always do this sketch. Everybody lets us use it. Okay, you can use our scissor lift. And we would just do a sketch that really didn't have a payoff other than we got to use this giant piece of machinery in the middle of a show.
0: And, like, I feel like you're underselling it every time I I bring it up. But, like, you guys were kind of like punk rock assholes in your era of show improv. Oh, yes. Like, Besser has told me stories that for a lot of the UCB sketch shows in Chicago, like, you guys were so poor that you would straight up just like go steal, pro- he told me one that like, he once went and broke into a college and stole an overhead projector. Oh, yes, they did. And then like the college found you guys and came and stole it back.
1: Yes, that's true. I don't recommend that.
0: I, but I love that you found Always borrow when you can. You know, when you can. <laughs> if you don't need to steal. Yeah, you yes, don't need to steal. Amazing. Here's one that I think is interesting. Do you have any advice for someone who knows they need to be in comedy? So this person's feeling that drive. They need to be in comedy for the rest of their life, but who doesn't know for a fact they're funny yet? It's true.
1: It's a very valid question. What do Well, you do? I think you have to go on that journey and discover whether you're funny or not. And also, you can be a funny writer, but people won't think you're funny. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's ways to serve comedy that you won't walk into a room and people will just be giggling. Uh, so there's many ways to make a career in comedy. So I would encourage that person to get involved and go see shows and learn what makes good comedy work. And you could learn to edit. You could learn to write. If, if you're not that stage persona, you could learn to produce and assemble great casts. Like, that's a skill. So there's many avenues to, if you appreciate and develop a good taste and a good understanding of comedy, you could still make a living in that world.
0: I think that it's funny, too. I remember you watch shows around the theater and you'll see some people where it's like, that person's kind of a stiff, man. But I get their jokes and then they write scripts that are like pitch perfect, start to finish. Yeah. And you're like, oh, right. Some people just don't have this like needy narcissism that I have to just be like, yeah, ah, yeah, All joke, the time. Joke, joke, joke. Yeah, some yeah. people can actually be calm and just And I always love
1: that when I was teaching when somebody would come in and had no stage experience whatsoever and then you saw them sort of blossom and discover this ability to improvise and contribute in comedy, and it's like the unlikely voice that turns into a juggernaut.
0: I even, like, like one of my favorite guys ever was Matt DeCoster. Yeah. Who was a lawyer, and he was a very, very specific... And maybe dangerous. A little dangerous, a little bit of a loose cannon vibe, but he, like, talked. Yes. He was very monotonous when he talked, and he moved in very stiff fashion, and he was a lawyer who just wanted to get better at speaking. But he, like, fell in love with improv, but one of the things about UCB I love is you guys actually do have technique. Like, I've never trained at another improv school, but one thing I really don't like is when people are like, oh, yeah, just like improv. You just like feel it, man. And it's like, or you can actually like work hard and think about how you communicate. Like, you guys have actual methods. Like, I remember taking classes where you guys were like, the teachers would be like, oh, you do this. No, that person said that. What do you think they wanted to happen? Yes. Give them that. Like, it was specific. And DeCoster was a guy who like figured yeah. out the mechanics of improv. And all of a sudden, like, he was a guy who I found it... And I mean, no offense to Matt if he ever sees this, but, like, it wasn't always the easiest to just have a social, personal conversation with him. Right. But then you get in an improv scene, and you can do anything, because he's like, it's like, oh, I know what you're... You know how the gears of this machine work, and I've been taught the same way, and we can do anything on stage. It was, like, such a cool revolution... Yeah, yeah. ...as a kid. Uh, What was your favorite Veep scene
1: to film? Oh, my gosh. Uh... I love running. Tony and I were supposedly in Iran, but really we were at Baltimore International Airport. (laughs) And just running around like maniacs, spilling liquor bottles and uh, running on the tarmac. That was particularly fun. I always love the uh, limo scenes because you're kind of stacked on top. Like you're, I'm this close to you and there's a cameraman here and they always become really giggly because it's such a compressed like spacecraft. It's really tiny in there. Uh, I always love filming those. Uh, I loved, there was a thing where she got sworn in as president, and Mike ruins the swearing in because he bumps into a lamp. <laughs> and it was just so funny because it was such a solemn moment. And the writers wrote this moment, but it was like a jingly like, Tiffany lamp. With... <laughs> and it was, we did multiple takes because every time like, I, it was there was a moment where she's repeating the oath, and because she doesn't repeat it correctly, later on she has to get sworn in again because I make her screw it up and I just kind of elbow this thing, and you hear this like really funny, like, clink, 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 And everybody laughed every time, because it was so funny. It was such a momentous moment, like the swearing-in of the president was the Supreme Court justice, and you just hear this, like, clink, clink. And, and Julia gives Mike this, like, you fucking idiot. And we always... So that was a memorable, uh, funny one. And running around. They always like to make us run. I always think that's funny.
0: I just read a think piece today on The Ringer about your character. Have you seen it yet? where there's like this think piece oh, about, technology? about how your character yeah, basically represents, represents confused middle-aged men <laughs> who don't know how technology works. Like how you're like a cultural I'm not alone. Architect. Mike's
1: not alone. Yeah. I'm a little better at tech than Mike, but yeah. I mean, you built that website, though. <laughs> I literally was like in charge of smart people. That's what's funny. I wasn't designing code, but I wrangled people together. Yeah, that's hilarious.
0: Hilarious. One last question that was submitted. Do you think the most successful UCB students are inherently funny, or do you think funniness beyond just improv technique can be taught and learned?
1: I, I, I would lean towards inherently funny. Like You can teach people to improvise, but there is a point of view that's comedic. You have to understand where the comedy is. Like You can't teach people a point of view. Their life history, their genetics, that, that brings them to that. And then there's also the thing of, like, in entertainment, we were talking about this earlier, there is a type that gets to be in the movie. Like, it's not necessarily leading man when it comes to comedy, but you have to look right. And I always say, when I teach and people ask this question, I'm like, there is, like, if you had a perfect joke that scientists tested, and it's a solid joke, and then you had 100 people, like a cross-sectional sample of average Americans going up on stage and delivering this one joke to an audience... My guess is that the success rate or statistically higher amount of laughs came from the fat guy. Because I think we're willing, there are types, <laughs> in the way that Joseph Campbell t- talks about the archetypal, we have types of people we laugh at. I'm not saying only the fat guy can be funny, yeah. but I think we are predisposed to allow ourselves to laugh at certain people. And, so that, and that's a makeup thing. Like that's how you look, yeah. that's the voice. That's the vibe. So you could have different people say that line, but it won't get laughs. So an empirically funny statement, a joke, delivered by someone that isn't, for whatever reason, perceived as funny, won't get a laugh. And that's like the intangible. So funny, I think, is more inherent than than it is teachable. But by the same token, you can teach people to improvise and act well and serve comedy. a lot. I think you can definitely... That is a that.
0: weird. There's like a weird archetypal improviser who is like a very kind of stiff, nerdy dude, and I am, I think, cut from this cloth, where it's like, there are people who, like, I think in mainstream success, yes, like, you hit a ceiling, and then at some point you have to be charismatic and funny and have something to say, but within the world of, of like, doing comedy in, like, in the world we came up in... You can kind of be a drip, but if you know how to listen hard enough and just move the pieces yeah. to the right places, you can still be a, a part of a lot of funny things. And you can be funny.
1: That's not saying that person's not funny. That's just saying that they won't cross over into like yeah. mass success or like yeah. media success. But uh, it, it there is like uh, I, I, that. Un, I don't know. You can't quantify it, but for whatever reason, it's the the tone of your voice. For some reason, people laugh when you say things. Yeah. And those are like the intangibles that we associate with comedy. And I think those are, I don't, this should be a sociological study. Yeah. Because I remember, this is weird, when 9-11 happened, I went up to somewhere up here to give blood uh, the day of, and I sat next to a, uh, a biologist slash physicist, and we started talking and he was, and this is like, because we waited for two hours, it was really crazy. And he said, don't you think, and he thought it was so amazing that a chemical reaction happens and elic- elicits a laugh, and you could take that thing, like like a, p- a pie in the face, you could go to uh, <coughs> Africa, or you could go to Australia, like where the language didn't matter, and you could do that pie in the face thing, and a chemical re- would reaction uh, would happen to a human being cross-culturally, cross boundaries, yeah. and, he, and he was trying to get me to explain them, I'm like, you're smart, I have no idea, like,
0: <laughs> he was obsessed with it, Yeah, and
1: we were dealing with something else at the time, but it was really a weird conversation to stumble into.
0: Yeah, but I, I actually feel, I always feel like one of my favorite improv notes I ever heard of that wasn't said directly to me in the class was from you. I don't know if this, this has always been attributed to you. In the I'll take world. it.
1: Whatever it is, I'll take it.
0: But there's always so much temptation to get, like, thinking of, like, why does comedy work and this and that. And I always heard that you were once teaching a class and everybody was overthinking it. And you were finally like, guys, pretend Lorne Michaels is out here and you get on SNL if you're funny enough. Now do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, yeah, sometimes we just think too hard about this shit. At the end of the day, sometimes we think too hard about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely true. That I don't
1: know if I said that, but I'll take it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> in, take the, it. in the very mythologized world of improv lore, that is one of yours. Well,
1: that's what happens when, when I come back for festivals like this. People go, Do you remember saying this? I'm like, No, I don't remember that.
0: Yeah, because also, like, <laughs> I'm old. You've been doing it a long time. Like, after those doing classes you were probably hungover when you were teaching them. <laughs> yeah. You just said that thing and didn't well, realize that. Well, somebody it had told me, Seth
1: asked me, our friend Seth asked me, like, Do you think people have to do Drugs to be great artists.
0: I've heard this, yeah.
1: And I don't remember that conversation either. Hus- like, Husky was telling me that. I'm that's like, an infamous one. And that I'm gets like, cited. biting. My, what did I say? What did I? Like, I kind of remember. <laughs> and I think my answer from Brian was like, you said that. Unfortunately, a lot of people who are drawn to the arts do have a predisposition to abuse things, but no, you don't
0: have to do drugs to be a great artist. You saved a lot of lives that day. Well, I think that's a good answer, right? Because also back then, 99, 2000, 2001, if you and Amy and Matt and Ian started telling all of us to do drugs, that would have just become a religious cult. I know, there's a lot of... And
1: you have that sway with your audience. You could tell your audience to do things. There could be a lot of there could have been a lot of drugs and orgies back in those days. Never an orgy at UCB. Never one. Not that I was invited to. There were some drugs from time to time. There was there was a fair amount of drugs, but not crazy. Not no needle drugs. No no no. Uh, But uh, no orgies.
0: No. It's kind no of orgies. a bummer. It's kind of a bummer. We really didn't check that box back in the there day. There were
1: orgies at the theater in Chicago that I was really? part of. The annoyance. I was never in them. Wow. I was never invited. Wow. Hey, what are you guys doing up there? <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Go home, Walsh. Yeah. <laughs>
0: there were... Yeah, go home. <laughs> go home. And on that happy note, I think we yeah. are out of time. I want to thank you guys all again. I hope this was worthwhile. The great Matt Walsh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. That was fun. It was great. Thanks for listening. 92y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.